So we're going to get into uh, some, uh, um, essentially the, the title uh, is the, the Jesus in Jerusalem, The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, maybe you've seen that movie. Um, and it's not about Jesus, but the title kind of makes the same sense. Uh, what Matthew has been doing with this gospel up until now has really been setting us up for, are you ready for what's coming? Are you ready for what's coming? Do you have any idea what's coming? We're going to Jerusalem. Do you realize who's in Jerusalem? Do you realize how tenuous this is going to be, how difficult it's going to be? And there's been hints all the way along. Now, this is a, I don't necessarily buy what I'm about to say, but I want you to know that this is something that's out there among scholars. Um, I'm ambivalent about it sometimes. Some days I feel one way, some days I feel another. One of the questions is, is Matthew reinserting some of those questions, or the scholarly um, concern is, as Matthew is setting us up for getting to Jerusalem, is he putting some of those um, hints in the text, in the story of Jesus, even words on the lips of Jesus, um, after the fact, as sort of a way of enhancing the story and setting up the story and getting us ready for what's coming in Jerusalem. Um, that's a really fun uh, theological kind of conversation to have with your friends from seminary, sitting up late at night drinking wine. And th the more wine you drink, the more sense it makes is kind of the way that works. But you kind of see what I'm talking about there is that, is that, you know, here's Matthew writing probably 75 or 80, maybe 90 AD. Some scholars have his, uh, his um, gospel being written that late. Maybe some, uh, in, when I was in seminary, there were some that were talking 110, 120, really, really long time after the life of Jesus. But he's looking back on, you know, you, you ever done this in your life? You look back and you go, boy, I wish I'd seen that sign, and I wish I'd seen that sign, and I wish I'd seen that sign. Um, uh, if you, uh, well, athletes, artists, actors, musicians, uh, you know, folks who perform for a living, you go back and review what you did and you realize, geez, I, I, why did I do that? I knew that was coming. Um, you know, we knew that play was coming. We still ran the wrong play against whoever we were playing, etc. Et it's kind of interesting that Matthew does, I think, something similar. He looks back and says, oh, oh, Jesus, when Jesus said this, he was really talking about that even though no one at the time got it. Or, some argue, Matthew put those words on Jesus' lips to help us see what was coming on down the road. Uh, let me see if I can say that. it. That Matthew's doing one of two or maybe both of these what things. That what he's doing is like, for example, he says to Peter, I will build my church on you. The word for church in Greek is ekklesia. At the time that Jesus and the disciples are walking around Israel, with each other, there is no thing called the church. And, and there's uh, almost no mention of it in any, any of the other gospels, of course. Uh, there's one reference in, in Matthew. So it appears as though scholars would say that story was invented as a way of giving Peter some support for him being the one who had the right church to get founded upon, et cetera, and so on. Um, because the word ecclesia just means assembly. And so for Jesus to say, I'm gonna build my gathering of people upon you, doesn't really carry quite the same connotation as we understand ecclesia today to mean church in that context. Prior to that, ecclesia would have meant any kind of a general, generic assembly, a gathering of people. Tonight, we're going to assemble and we're going to talk about Star Wars, or we're going to talk about um, uh, uh, whatever you want to talk about. You see the idea. So um, that's one example where scholars would say that's probably a story that Matthew, well, not all scholars would say that today, but it's, it's, a, it's an interesting debate. Some would say absolutely, others would say, oh, no, no, Jesus is setting up, even though the disciples don't know what the church is going to be, he's just helping them get ready for what's going to come later. I don't really buy that either. Um, 
so that's a lot of what's happening in, in, in Matthew's gospel is this set up stuff. Whether he's putting things back on their lips, on the on lips of Jesus, or he's inserting stories in to make his own point, or he's simply looking back and saying, oh yeah, that and that and the other thing, those were signs that we didn't really get at the time and weaving them into a story. Either way, that's what he's doing, is he set us up for this last week, this last week, really. And really, my, my Bible's over here. Um, really, there's more written in the four Gospels about Jesus last week than anything else combined. Um, I think I told you a couple weeks ago that Fred Craddock thinks John's gospel uh, describes a 10-year-long ministry for Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to describe a three-year-long ministry for Jesus. Regardless of which, um, uh, whether it was three or 10 or five or somewhere else, um, the fact of the matter is most of the story focuses on that last week. I think like almost a half of the gospel of John focuses on that last week of Jesus' life. And the things he said, and the things he taught, and the things he did. I mean, look, look, look at, just look at what you had to read tonight. We started with Jerusalem and the um, um, uh, Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, and then we end at the end at the crucifixion uh, with, the, with a ton of material there. So uh, just, just, just a little bit of introduction to that. And then um, the last slide that's going to come up, don't put it up now, Stuart, but the last slide that'll be up in a moment um, is the one that, that comes from the lips of Jesus, according to Matthew. My God, my God, why? And that's part of the question I want you to have hanging over my head as though there's one of those little cartoon thought bubble things. You know, why? Was this the only way Jesus could have gone? Is this the only option he had? Were there other options before him? What if Jesus had said, nah, I don't want to be crucified? Um, I had left early. Uh, again, those are good stay up late at night and, and, and argue with your uh, theological buddies kind, kinds of questions. But just for tonight, I want you to think about that. Was this the only option? Is this the only way? Was there something else? Now, I'll tell you, I've done that before with, with groups like this and had people freak out and say, that's just crazy. And we, it, since it happened, let's not even think about that. But yeah, I think it helped. Even that reaction actually confirms, I think, that's something we got to think about. Um, does it feel so bizarre and strange and weird? Uh, well, maybe there's something there, if it, especially if it pulls on something that you don't like getting pulled on. Um, maybe that's a place to, to live. So let's get into the text themselves. Let's go to the first slide. Um, we're going to look at uh, 21, 1 through 11. This is the very uh, well-known passage, more or less, because uh, you've heard it uh, at least once a year, every year, if you've been going to church on, on Palm Sunday. He gets a couple of his disciples together and tells them to go find um, uh, a, king, a, a colt and a donkey. Um, by the way, the way Matthew writes this, it's almost as though he's going to ride on both animals. Have you noticed that? Did, that? did that make sense? Look at verse 1. When they, they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, he's, Matthew is referencing two different texts, Old Testament texts that were considered prophecies. One says that the, the Messiah will ride on a donkey. The other one says the Messiah will ride on a colt. And so the way, what Matthew, the way Matthew makes both of those work, since they're two different animals, he says, well, let's go get both. Um, you, you, look at, you look at Mark's version and Luke's version, and uh, I think also at John's, and there, isn't, there aren't two animals. Only, only Matthew does that, because um, Matthew knows his Old Testament, his Hebrew Bible, really, really well, and, and um, wa wants to do that. So it's a little bit of a strange, a little bit of a strange um, um, a way to tell the story, but it, but it works for him. Okay, that the disciples went and did as he said, etc. Now they come into town, the crowds, I'm at verse 9. 
the crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil. Somebody got a different word there for turmoil? Anybody else have a different word? Say it, what'd you say? Stirred. Chaos. Riot. Ooh, good. What, what, what version do you have? Is that you just make that up? That's good. That, that's, that's really good. Chaos, riot. What else? Anybody else got something? What's that? Excited. Excited works, yeah. The, the Greek word that, we, that in my Bible is translated as turmoil is seismos. What does that make you think of? Earthquake. Yeah. The whole city was shaken up. Some people were excited. Some people weren't. Some people were not to chaos, turmoil, excitement, yes. All those are true. Anybody ever, anybody ever been in an earthquake? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. You know, it's not really a fun thing. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of exciting. The very first earthquake that I remember, I was in seventh grade. We lived in Montebello, California. It's a, sub, a suburb of L.A. And I got knocked out of bed. This big, huge earthquake came. It was 1971. Knocked me out of bed. I was in the bottom bunk. My little brother was in the top bunk. Somehow he stayed in his. Knocked me out of bed and got a call about, oh, 20 minutes after the earthquake from the school saying that school had been canceled. The um, junior high uh, building was not safe to enter. And in seventh grade, of course, I thought that was great. That was awesome. Um, but it was also really scary when we started watching the news and seeing where the people had, had buildings had collapsed, all, all that kind of stuff. My sister was in San Francisco in the, 19, in the um, 1989 quake. 89 or 88? We, we, uh, Giants, and, Giants and the A's were in the World Series. I think it was 89. Uh, we were living, Julie and I were living in San Diego, and I sat down to watch the Giants and A's game one or game two of the World Series. And all of a sudden, it was Al Michaels on the, on the TV talking. All of a sudden, boom, the TV went blank. And I immediately, Julie was still at work. I immediately thought, that's an earthquake. I called my sister Carolyn, who was living in San Francisco at the time. And she picked up the phone and said, what, what? <laughs> I said, it's Glenn. Are, did you guys have an earthquake? Yes, I can't get to my babies. I got to go. And she dropped the phone. She later told me they lived in one of those long, you've seen those long, narrow houses um, uh, in, in San Francisco. She lived in one of those. And literally, she said the floor was rippling. And her two little kids were at the end of the hallway, and she was trying to get them, and the force of the quake kept knocking her down and knocking her down. A seismic event is a frightening, scary thing. What Matthew wants us to understand is, except for this group of folks who are happy to see Jesus coming in, everybody else is shaken up. Part of the reason is this. On the other side of town, according to Marcus Borg, and Dominic Crossan, two scholars that I really like. I think Marcus Borg has spoken. I know Marcus Borg has spoken here. Dominic Crossan might have been here. Was he here too? Yes. Um, both of them think that on the opposite side of town, there's a similar but very different uh, entry, triumphal entry into town. It's, it's, it's Pilate coming up from the sea, from uh, Caesarea Maritima, where those of us who are going to the Holy Land in a couple of weeks will be visiting. He's coming up from his beautiful palace at Caesarea Maritima, where he's got this view of the Mediterranean Sea. It's lovely and peaceful and uh, temperate, moderate temperatures. Now he's going up about 3,500 feet, 4,000 feet up to where Jerusalem is. It's hot, dusty, ugly, awful. The city is crowded. It's Passover. It's holiday time. That's the worst time of year to be in Jerusalem under Roman rule, because that's when people get really rowdy 
piled up, and that's when riots start, that's when there are attacks on the Roman soldiers. You know, the Roman soldiers marched in nice, neat, orderly file, and, and these, 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 these um, uh, Jewish, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sorry? Zealot, thank you. The zealots um, are hiding out around the corner. They jump down, stab, and kill a bunch of them, and then run back into the hills. It's a really dangerous time. So Pilate's bringing everybody. He's on a white stallion. He's got all his, his, his um, troops with him, probably thousands of troops marching in Jerusalem. They're carrying, remember I said this a couple weeks ago, they're carrying two banners. One says, Caesar is Lord. The other one says, um, Caesar brings peace. Another one says, Caesar is Savior. Do you hear Lord and Savior? Um, that's something to think about for next week. But do you see the different procession? This is a procession of power. We got troops, we got armor, we got chariots, we got horses, we got spears. We will kill if you get in our way. We're here to keep order in this town. Here's Jesus on the other side of town. He's riding on a donkey or a little colt. He's coming in with, with, with the poorest of the poor. I think, I think Jesus intended to juxtapose those two things. This is, as Mr. Hauerwas says, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is an unmistakable political act. What does he mean by that? He's countering the politics of power. He's countering the politics of Pilate and his chariots and his horses and his swords and his spears. He's saying this kingdom will be based on peace. Yours is based on violence. It's a counter, it's a counter um, almost revolutionary, well, not, not almost, a revolutionary way of approaching. All right, let's go to slide two. We're going to read the next, the next story. Uh, verses 12 through 17. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. I, I cannot tell you how many times I have used this story as a joke, and people had no idea I was being funny. Um, in fact, there was one time here, I think it was my very first, um, uh, Pam, what's it called when we do the, the, the farmer's market? My very first farmer's market, and there were all these wonderful people that set up all these marvelous tables with all this wonderful food, and I just came out there and said, I'm going to turn over all these tables and get you dens of thieves, get this den of thieves out of here. And all these sweet people went, is he, is he upset? <laughs> um, it's, it's not a good joke if you don't know the Bible. <laughs> uh, so I've, I've, I've been doing this for 30 years now, and maybe some year I'll figure out, you know, you shouldn't probably, anyway. Um, uh, it's not about that. It, it's not about that. It's not about selling things at the church to raise money to help poor people have more food or to do the things that we do to raise money around here. You know, I mean, every, I think every Sunday there are two or three or four tables set up out here. And same thing at the South Campus with people sometimes selling things, etc. That's not what it is. Here's what it is. Let's imagine this is the temple, okay? All of us are, are, are good, faithful Jews. We've come to worship in the temple on, on, on the Sabbath. That area there does not have a wall. It just has a couple of pillars, but it's a, it's a different courtyard area, what we call Unity Lounge. It'd be a little bit bigger than that, probably two or three times bigger than that. That's the place. It's also what we referred to in, in Jerusalem as the court of the Gentiles. Now, do you hear what it is? This is the place where non-Jewish people can come to the temple. This is the place where they can hear the reading from Isaiah. This is the place where they can hear the priests chanting the psalms and probably the people singing the psalms together. This is the place where everyone is included. 
And when Jesus comes in and he sees that they've covered that whole area that's meant to be a place for everyone else and turn it into a profit-making enterprise, he's furious. That's when he turns over. It's not about violence. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about him saying, we need to get this all out of the way so that the people that God wants to come here so that everyone can be a part of this can make their way in. He's making a visual statement about how open and inclusive uh, this message is. Um, uh, of, uh, of, of the one that Jesus came to affirm, not really to get rid of, but to affirm. All right, uh, let's go to the next, next text. 21, 28 to 32. One of my favorite parables. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. It's a good way to uh, endear yourself to your audience, right? The hookers are going in before you all. That's just probably not something I'm going to say on a Sunday morning. Uh, For John came to you uh, in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Um, There's a couple things here. Just on the surface level, uh, Jesus is letting the religious leaders know. You guys think you got it, but you don't. You think it's about the way you look and the way you dress and how well you know the Bible and all those kinds of things, and that's not it. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, outsiders, people considered evil, all that sort of thing, they've actually understood. They heard John the Baptist preach. They've heard me. They understand what it is that matters. The rest of you are very, very confused. That's the first thing. Second thing, notice this. Do we have that slide up there? Go to the next one, Stuart. Having taken up the cross, Christians discover they have no fear of the truth, no matter where it might come from. I, mean, that, I, I think that's, that's what Hauerwas agrees with me, or I agree with him. Uh, um, he wrote the book before me. That what is being dis- on display here is, is it, it's not about being the absolute one on the inside. Anyone who speaks truth is someone whose voice is welcome and is a part of it. Um, you might have heard me say, in fact, I, I said this at a Burkhart Center opening uh, several months ago, First Community Church has been the kind of church for over 100 years that welcomes the truth no matter where it comes from. If a Buddhist is here and speaks truth, we want to hear that voice. If a Hindu is here, a Muslim, anybody, uh, if an atheist speaks truth, we want to hear that voice. And here's the way I illustrate this story. When our son was in uh, eighth or ninth grade, I think it was eighth grade, our oldest son, Nate, we were going for a walk and he announced that um, he was no longer going to church because he'd become a Buddhist. I said, okay. We kept walking. About five minutes later, so you're okay with the Buddhist thing? Oh, well, I, would, I would rather you go into church, but if you really want to be a Buddhist, um, my friend um, uh, Chuck Stanford is the Lama for Kansas City. Uh, that's the Buddhist Lama. He's a really cool guy, and I think you'll like him. Maybe you want to give him a call. Five more minutes of silence. <laughs> he said, no, so seriously, you're okay with this? I said, I said look, I, I'm, I'm somebody who follows Jesus. I'm planning to spend the rest of my life following Jesus. I want his teaching and his life to illustrate for me how to live. But I don't think Jesus was afraid of the truth. And I, used, I told Nate this story. I told him this parable. And Nate kind of smiled and went, well, if I'd heard that story sooner, I might still be a Christian. <laughs> 
you, kind of, you see the idea? The, the idea is if, if, a, if, a, if a Buddhist comes in and says, I don't believe in Jesus, but he loves his neighbor and treats everyone honestly and humanely and kindly and graciously, and a Christian comes in and says, I'm all in with Jesus, I'm, I'm there with him all the way, but then he treats his neighbor horribly and rips off people and steals and has this terrible business and, and sleeps around on his wife, uh, which one is yes and which one is no? I mean, you get it, right? That's essentially, that's what's going on in this story here. The way we live matters. Our beliefs are going to evolve and change. What I believed when I was 15 and what I believed when I was 25 and frankly what I believed when I was 45 to today has evolved and changed. Not radically, gigantically. I'm still a Christian. I still follow Jesus. It's still important to me. But my, my beliefs at 15 and now are very different. What Jesus really wants to know is, how are you living your life? Did you, did you follow on the path of yes, or did you follow on the path of no? All right, let's go to 22, 1 to 14. Chapter 22, 1 through 14. Parable of the wedding back, banquet. I'm not going to read the whole parable because it's kind of confusing. But I, I, hope you, I hope you read it. This is one of those really strange, weird parables, okay? Everyone's invited the, the, um, to, the, to the banquet. Uh, there's this big wedding going on. What's happening here, according to Tom Long, who's a, um, another theologian that I've been reading uh, along, along the way in the story is, Tom says it's an allegory. You know what an allegory is, right? So who would the king be? Nope, not Caesar. God. Who would the son be? Jesus, and you just kind of go on down through and you can, you can line it all up together. It's, it's a really strange parable and a really strange story. Now, um, um, I don't believe that Darth Vader exists, okay? But I really like the Star Wars movies. How can I believe that Darth Vader doesn't exist, but I enjoy Star Wars movies, and I think they've actually got a pretty good message. Who's, who does Darth Vader represent through most of the movies? Evil. And Luke Skywalker is good. So we got good versus evil. I don't think Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader are real people. Um, yet the power, of the, the truth of the story is still there. In this, in this parable, the wedding banquet, we have all these wild, violent, terrible, awful things happening. Especially at the end when, when some poor guy is, kind of stumbles into the party and goes, you didn't bring your wedding, you, you didn't bring your wedding garment? Then get the heck out of here. It's kind of like saying, let's say you were walking by the church. Um, I've I got a wedding, come, a wedding coming up in a couple of weekends. And, and, and I say, hey, come on in. Come on in and be a part of the wedding. This would be great for you to be here. By the way, it's a black, it's a black tie wedding. Did you bring your tuxedo? And you're like, no, I didn't bring my tuxedo. If I say, well, then you're being sent to hell forever to to be tormented and burned. That's how that, that's how that parable ends. It's really strange and weird. What, What would you think if I did that to you? Yeah, what you're not saying out loud. That's what you think. Uh, um, That would be crazy. That would be insane. The point is, A, Jesus wants to get our attention. So, you, you know, if you really want to get attention, if you want to tell a story of good versus evil, give them lightsabers and, and really cool spaceships that fly around and the guy with a helmet for a head instead, all, all that stuff. It gets people's attention. That's basically, you probably know this by the way, the Star Wars movies are basically the same as every uh, good, good guy, bad guy cowboy movie that was ever made. Uh, it's the same kind of, same thing, or good night, bad night, or good samurai, bad samurai, etc. Um, in this story, what Jesus wants us to see is how desperate God is for us to be a part of God's kingdom. 
It's, it's not about, oh my gosh, how will I know if I, I mean, I remember hearing a lesson about this when I was in youth group about how, boy, you, be, you better be ready. What that's really saying is if God calls you at a moment to invite you in, you better be ready for that. No, that's just, that's a fear-based religion. We're going to get to that into a, into a moment. Um, God very much wants everyone at the party, but not everyone else wants to go. That's the point being made. God wants you and me to be there, but not all of us want to be there and live in the way that we're invited to live by, by Jesus. Here's a great story from the Chronicles of Narnia. I think it's from the, the last book called, or is, it the last, is the final battle the last book? I think it is. We, did, we took this class in seminary, didn't we, Julie? <laughs> yeah, Julie, come tell the story. Um, the final battle's over. The witch has been defeated. You, you, know, you know the, battle, the story of Narnia, right, in general? The witch has been defeated, the white witch is gone. Aslan, who, is, who is, uh, represents Jesus in the story, his kingdom is now fresh. The, the, the ice is all gone. The, re, the beautiful green um, Narnia has returned. All the folks are, everyone's happy. It's, it's, a, it's a symbol for heaven, for paradise, for the, the final uh, eternal life that's to come for everyone. But there's this group of dwarves who are all huddled down, and they're all just sitting like this. And, and the, the main characters in the story come up, Edward and, and the others come up to him and to the dwarves and say, hey, you guys, what are you doing? Why are you sitting like that? And they're going, oh, you're trying to trick us. We're stuck inside this black hole here and it's dark and dingy and dirty and smelly and awful and, and there's walls built up around us and we, we can't come out. We'll be killed if we come out. No, 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 seriously, you can come out. There's nothing there. Oh, you're just trying to, no, I can see you're smoking a pipe. I can see it. Oh, no, no, you can smell the tobacco. That's all. That's what's going on in this story. They're, they're all stuck there. The image is this, I think that C.S. Lewis is making. Everyone's invited to heaven, but some people, even when they get there, are going to be too frightened to live it, to let it be their way of, of life. These dwarves, and by the way, the dwarves are sort of, I used to say Switzerland, but I don't think that's fair. They're sort of the Vichy government of France. Does that make sense? You know, they're like, okay, we're all in. We're going to fight the Germans. Hup, the Germans are here. Hey, we're all in. We like the Germans. Hup, they won. They lost. Okay, we didn't mean that. We're sorry. These dwarves, they, they never can quite figure out which side they're on. They can't decide if they're yes or they're no. And when the war is finally over and finally won and they're safe and they're welcome to be a part of the whole thing, they're still stuck down there hiding. That's what this parable is about, essentially, is that there will be some who will just say no matter what is going on. I don't know. I'm not too sure about that. Um, I preached a, a sermon series once called uh, Heaven on Earth. And I think that's part of what this is about. We sometimes get so caught up in fear that we actually experience hell on earth instead of the heaven that God wants us to find. Okay, um, let's go to the next text. We're going to look at 22, 15 to 21. And what I've tried to do with these, with these texts is kind of give a highlight along the way of all the things that Jesus was teaching. So just imagine this. Keep your finger there on um, verse 15, 22, verse 15. Imagine how intense this week is for Jesus. And that's part of why all these stories are told and why it's so long because everyone is remembering. Do you remember what he said? Oh, and then there was three days before, and he said, I mean, think about it. The crucifixion and the resurrection three days later are these gigantic, huge events in the church's life and history. And so the people who were there at the time remember everything. How many of you remember where you were at, on the moment you heard about 9-11? It looks almost every hand, as far as I can tell. Uh, those of you who are old enough, how, how, how many of you remember where you were when JFK was killed? I was about to turn five years old, and I remember 
I remember sitting on the, on the couch with my mom and dad, and my mom and dad were crying while they were watching the funeral procession. And it happened two days after my birthday. And I remember as a little, little kid, I mean, this is stuck in my brain. I remember as a little kid thinking, we just had my birthday. Why is everyone sad? And then my dad explained to me, well, the, the president was killed, and I, I knew that he was an important person, and I felt bad for him, but I just had my birthday. I, you know, I forgive how trite that sounds, but if something major happens, you remember everything about that, right? I mean, I don't know what I did yesterday, but I can, well, I, we went to a movie and had a nice dinner. Um, but I, I don't remember last week, hardly. Something major happens. So all these stories are, just, there's an intensity to them. Um, that just almost naturally appears in Matthew, Mark, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, so let's get back to this little comment here about taxes. Then Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they went to their, sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere. Teach us the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one. Tell us, verse 17, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Okay, if Jesus says no, he's in trouble. He can get arrested for, for um, uh, sedition immediately. If he says yes, then he's in trouble with all the religious folks, and especially the folks who hate the Romans who are there. What's his famous answer? You know his famous answer, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Hauerwas, if you read Hauerwas's um, commentary, notes that part of what's going on here is if you've got a, if you've got a Roman coin, on one side, there's a symbol of something or other, a couple of words. What's on the other side? It's a face of Caesar. What, what Hauerwas believes Jesus is doing is illustrating for them that this is idolatry, and Jews are to have no other images before them than God's. Therefore, there is nothing that is Caesar's. And if you've got something that's got his picture on it, give that back to him. Because if you hang on to it, that's the practice of idolatry. Put the, put the next quote up, Stuart. This parable is meant to make, oops, go one more, sorry. Christian accommodation to play the game dictated by Caesar's coin ensure that the separation of state and church makes Christians faithful servants of states that allegedly give the church freedom. Let that sit in for a while because that's pretty controversial. <clears throat> What Harwas thinks Jesus is arguing is that there's nothing made by Caesar that followers of Jesus want. Now, this makes me really nervous on a couple of fronts. It has some political implications. We're also raising our pledges for our stewardship campaign. <laughs> I can just see someone turning their pledge card and going, hey, I've just given back to Caesar. It's a big zero, thanks. Um, uh, but that, go, go to it at a theological level. The, the idea is that Jesus wants his followers to be clear about who they follow. Is it Caesar and the state? Or is it Jesus? Which is, which is primary? And, and, and what Jesus would say, I think, and Howard Walsh would agree with me, is you can't have both. Here, I'll illustrate where this conundrum hits me um, professionally, uh, pastorally. I, I've done, I don't know, two or three or 400 weddings in my 30 years, uh, probably at least 300. Um, did a bunch in Kansas City. It was a kind of a wedding location, uh, the, church, the church was. And I've always been squeamish about being the guy that has to sign the license. Because in my mind, when I'm on that chancel with that couple, and they're standing right here in front of me. 
And I say to him, would you repeat after me? And I say to her, would you repeat after me? And they repeat those vows and they make promises to be with each other. And then they exchange rings and say, you're mine and I'm yours. In the eyes of the church, they are now married. I don't care what the state says. If, if they've been, if they've made those promises in front of their family and their friends and God, they're married. Now, I do believe that it's a good idea for the state to be involved in that at one level or another. And so I, of course, have signed every document, partly because it says at the bottom of each marriage license, if you don't return this in 15 days, you will go to jail. Um, <laughs> That's, that's not much of an exaggeration. It's pretty clear. It's, it says that. Um, I'll tell you about the one time I forgot to sign it and it was, uh, I didn't go to jail, but I was nervous for a couple days. Um, one out of 400, I think it was probably okay. Do you, you see where I'm getting at here? Is, is there, if someone were to say to me, how would you feel okay if the state no longer was in charge of, of weddings? Part of me is like, yeah, perhaps. When my church in Kansas City um, came up to the issue right after gay marriage was made legal, um, uh, I went to the board and said, here's our plan of how we'd like to approach this. We'd like to create some study groups. We were, we're going to have conversations about what the Bible teaches, what it doesn't say, because there's a lot of misinformation. We're going to do all this, and, and we invite people to a, a congregation-wide conversation, and the church board shocked me. The church board said, um, have you ever asked for permission to do a wedding? No. Uh, have you ever done a Jewish Christian wedding? I was kind of nervous because I wasn't quite sure where this person was going. I said, yes, I've done six or seven with, with a rabbi and me in the room together, sometimes in the park, yes. Have you ever done a wedding um, with uh, any other faith? Um, yeah, get, I'm, get, I'm starting to sweat, you know. I said, I actually did a Christian Hindu wedding here in the sanctuary at Country Club Christian Church where we blended Christian and Hindu traditions together. It was really quite beautiful. I told a long story to try to get them off of whatever they were, they were going for. And this person said, why didn't you ask us for permission? Well, because the tradition of this church and our practice and my understanding theologically, exactly. Why are you asking us for permission to do same-sex marriages? I couldn't believe it. Uh, now, I think if we'd had that conversation 15 years before, it might have been a different conversation because that just came up in the last three or four years. But that, the, the, the person who was saying all that stuff to me, she understands what Jesus is getting at here. She understood that the church behaves like the church should, not the way the state does. Will Willimon, another story to illustrate this point, Will Willimon, who was the um, chaplain at Duke for 20 years or more, a Methodist preacher, brilliant scholar, Wilmon tells a story meeting with, I don't know, a couple thousand Duke students. Uh, they'd had some ethical issue on campus and he was talking, he was basically saying to them, you are, most of you, mindless followers of whatever you're told to do. And they're like, no, we aren't. He said, yes, you are. How many of you drink beer and sometimes drink too much beer? And like every hand in the room went up and said, see, that's what I'm talking about. And somebody stood up and said, oh, no, 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 we, I'm a free person. I'm a free American. I can make a choice to drink beer or not drink beer if I want to. That's my freedom. That's my choice. And Willimon said, really? Watch this. And he went over to the microphone and he said in a really loud voice, tastes great. What did everybody in the room say? less filling, see? And then his illustration was, you don't even realize how much you have been bent by Madison Avenue to do exactly what they're telling you to do. When I said tastes great, 2,000 of you said less filling. You think you're choosing beer because that's your free choice, but you've actually, and I'm not against beer, by the way, that you think that's your free choice, but you're actually being pushed in ways you're not even paying attention to. That's what Jesus wants us to get at here, is, is to, to look at this again. 
in, in light of everything we just talked about. Christian accommodation to play the game dictated by Caesar's coin ensures that the separation of state and church makes Christians faithful servants of states that allegedly give the church freedom. We're, we're, I, I believe, I, I'm an American through and through. It's the greatest country in the history of the world. Amen. Thank, thank the Lord for this. But every government in the history of the world bends us in, in the way that government wants us to go. It's fascinating to go to a church in another part of the world. And I don't mean visit and look at some big, beautiful cathedral. I mean get involved in the life of those folks and hear how they worship, hear how they think. I was in South Africa um, in, the, in, the, in the early 2000s on a, on a mission trip. And these were folks whose practice of faith was very, very, very conservative, evangelical, almost fundamentalist, Pentecostal in style. And then we'd have conversations afterwards about how they cared for each other and they sounded like a bunch of socialists. Now, I'm not saying that socialism is, is equal to Christianity, but it was fascinating to experience a very conservative approach to the Christian faith in a foreign country, in a, most, in a, in a third world setting, inside one of the townships where the poorest of the poor in the world live and hear them talk about their Christian faith after having just gone through the most Pentecostal service I've been in a long time, fundamentalist in style, and hear them talk about the way they're called by Jesus to share everything they have with everybody so that everybody has enough. Now, if I started preaching that, I think I might get in a little bit of trouble. But there's something fascinating about that that the state has a tendency to push us in one direction or, or, or another. Um, I'm, not, I'm not reaching a conclusion on this on purpose. I, I wanted to put this up in front of you just to get your mind thinking about it. Get, get, if we had more time, I'd divide up in a bunch of small groups and have you talk about what are all the influences in your life that you don't even pay attention to, yet if you look really hard, you realize they're there. Oh, what's the Alfa Romeo? Have you seen the Alfa Romeo commercials? You know those hot little red cars? I'm watching it, and one of them, one of them is called a Julia. It's, it's G-I-U-L-I-A, and this car's going around, and there's this, there's this woman talking about how this is the greatest car ever, and I, I, looked, I looked over at Julie, and I said, I want one of those. <laughs> and she said, you are so easy. It's just like, but that's the point. That, that's kind of the point. Um, sometimes we don't even realize how much we're being manipulated by all, all that stuff. Okay. Uh, let's go to slide six, the next one, which should be what Jesus claims. What Jesus claims is that the whole law is about love, not rules, about loving God and one's neighbor, not about figuring out how to avoid stepping on cracks in the, in the legal sidewalk. That's from Tom Long, the other scholar who I've been noting. Um, look at 22, 34 through 40. You've heard this before. Verse 36, 22, 36. Teacher, what commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Um, when we were in seminary, we loved that Jesus turned a one-answer question into a two-answers. We tried that on tests all the time. It never worked. But um, that's because Jesus was way smarter than us. It's that, it's that well-known story of what's the great commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. They're basically, the, the, to use the coin imagery, um, two different sides of the same coin. If you're loving God, you're loving your neighbor. If you're loving your neighbor, you're, 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 loving, you're loving God. Um, when Julie and I were, were leading camps back in our youth ministry days, We'd go up to the front. So here we are, a bunch of high school kids, 150 high school kids from all over Southern California at Lock Levin Camp up in, the, up in the mountains above LA, above San Bernardino County, technically. 
and here's 150 kids, you know, it's a Sunday, they're all kind of nervous and excited and all that stuff, all the emotions and everything else that's all mixed in there. And uh, it comes time to talk about the rules for camp. And I would go up to the wall and I would write, we'd unfurl this big, huge banner uh, open on the front of the wall and it would say, uh, rules for camp, love God, number one, number two, love your neighbor. I'd say, that's our entire rules for the whole week. That's all we got to do. And it'd be sort of this little, oh, really? What's he, what's, the, what's he talking? Not really, is he? I said, no, that's it. Those two, that's all we got to do. As long as you're loving God and loving your neighbor, we're going to have a great week. <clears throat> and some, some, someone, usually a boy, a guy, raises his hand and go, so we can go into opposite sex cabins? Oh, well, that's a really good question. Um, girls, would you like boys just showing up in your cabins unannounced and walking in with, if, they, if they wanted to? No, the, boy, the reply would be, oh, okay. Well, let's get a flip chart out. So we could bring a flip chart out. And we'd say, here's our understanding of what it means to love God and love your neighbor. Um, do not visit the other, uh, a, a different sex cabin. Anything else we need to name? Well, I think everybody ought to be together at every meal. Oh, that's a really good thing because meals are where you build community. And then we'd write that down. Everyone attends every meal. What else? Anything else? What, is it, what does it mean? Well, we probably should be kind to each other. Oh, that's good too. Yeah, write that down. Do you see what we were doing? We are basically saying, this is the general banner over everything we do. But also, I was letting them make the rules. Because if I stand up there and go, you can't go in opposite sex cabins and you must come to every single thing. Instead it was coming. Now, there, there were a couple of years where they just kind of went, all right, cool, we're fine. That's good. Uh, what about going to opposite? I'd have to kind of prime the pump a little bit. But the idea was, it's not about the rules. It's not about figuring out, oh, there's a crack there. I can't step, I can't step there. Um, uh, we've gotten it. We've, we've, we, we encountered this earlier in Matthew's gospel. You know, when Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are all, all upset and he talks about David uh, and a story of David feeding his soldiers when they used the, the, the blessed bread when they shouldn't have, but they were hungry. It, it, you know, it's really not about all that stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's more about doing what the right thing is at the right moment, regardless of what the rules might say. All right. Uh, let's go down to um, uh, 23, chapter 23. Verse 37, the, uh, the whole of 23 is Jesus and scribes and Pharisees kind of going at each other, which we've heard a lot of already. So I'm going to the very end now. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. By the way, um, um, if you pray to God, your father, I'm, I'm fine with that. If you pray to God, your mother, I'm fine with that. If you pray to God as the great holy power of the universe, I'm fine with that. If you pray to God as the great chieftain in the sky, I'm fine with that. If you pray to God as, you see where I'm going there. Um, if you need an illustration of how the Bible uses more than just male imagery for God, we just read one. Did you catch it? How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen? gathers her brood under her wings and you were willing. I don't think Jesus is a giant, or God is a giant chicken in the sky, um, but it's female imagery for, for God. And you can find tons of other, God is a rock, God is a fortress, God is, uh, God is uh, a whole lot of things. Um, but what's really happening here in this text is Jesus is lamenting over the leaders of Jerusalem, not the people in general, not the entire city, but the leadership, first of all. Secondly, this reflects, this is another one of those places where Matthew looks back at history. In 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple. And Matthew's looking back through that lens going, oh, holy cow, ah, mm, Jesus talked about that, didn't he? 
etc. See, that's what that's where I was getting at with that that earlier stuff of him looking back and seeing something that had been going on, and now is understanding that in a whole different way. But then there's this little note of grace. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, "Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord." That echoes what was said on the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, and it's also a quote from Psalm 118. It's also a promise that he'll come back. It's a promise that I'm going to do whatever I have to do finally in whatever end of all ends there is to make this whole thing work out. It's a promise of grace, ultimately. All right, we're doing okay. Let's go to the next slide, slide seven. Disciples' task is to stay awake and alert precisely because they do not know and cannot know the day and the hour. This is the text um, in... in um, uh, Jesus' teaching where he says that no one knows, no one knows when the Son of Man is coming back. If you have a friend who's a, in a more fundamentalist faith and, and they start telling you, oh, you know what, the signs are lining up. Oh, my goodness, you know, the, the North Koreans are doing this and the South Koreans are doing this and, and Russia's doing that and China's doing this and those are Gog and Magog and it was predicted in the book of Revelation and, and the book of Daniel and all this stuff. And, and, well, you can quote me and say, no. Jesus says, no one knows. That's the number one thing. Number two, the book of Revelation is not about the end of the world. It's a completely different story. We might look at Revelation a year from now if y'all choose that next week. But it's a, it's a completely different story. If Jesus says that no one knows, then we don't really need to spend any time worrying about, is Jesus coming back today or tomorrow or, or the next day? Or all these things have lined up. That must mean the end of the world is coming. No. No and no. Um, have there been predictions of the end of the world or of Jesus returning? You remember the guy in Oakland a few years ago? And it was like going to be May 15th or something. Um, there was another guy in Florida who was going to read a Koran uh, out loud, and he was sure that would echo in the end of the world and all this stuff. Um, my, my buddy E.J. Becker in Kansas City uh, is, a, is a, a morning drive time uh, talk show host from 5 to 8 uh, or five to nine in the morning. Um, it's a news station. It's a really conservative news station. He's a good friend of mine. He's a member of the church. And, and he'd always call me up and say, hey, um, did you hear about the crazy guy in Oakland? Yes, EJ, yes. Oh, no, please no. He said, can I interview you tomorrow live on the radio about what you think about that? And I, and I gave him a bad time because the crazy guy burning the Koran down in Florida, the crazy guy in Oakland, I forget, but there was a couple, three other crazy things that were going on in the country. EJ would always call me, first of all, he's a member of my church, so he knew I had to say yes. Um, and I get interviewed about this stuff. I said the exact same thing every time, just like I told you. No, we don't know. No, we don't know. No, we don't know. It is fascinating. I mean this seriously. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be a smart mouth. It's fascinating how much money some of these predictors of the end of the world make. Hal Lindsey in the 70s wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Anybody read that book? Anybody? One, well, at least one or two folks did. Um, there was a cartoon that came out 15 years later in the Wittenberg Door, my favorite satire magazine of all time. It was a picture of Hal Lindsey driving this really nice uh, Mercedes, and the, the bubble over his head said, guess I was wrong. <laughs> you look at some of these guys, they're charlatans, they're thieves, they are, they are antithetical to the gospel. I'll just say it that clearly. Absolutely antithetical to the gospel. Because Jesus... If we just listen to Jesus, he says, uh, no, the answer is no. All right, go to um, 25, chapter 25, verse 14. Keep your finger there and also keep your finger on verse 31, parable of talents and the parable of sheep and goats. Go to the next slide, Stuart, slide eight. 
We spend our lives creating God in the image of our own fears, and all the while God is beating us over the head with the balloon of grace. I quoted Robert Capon last week. I just love that. God is beating us over the head with the balloon of grace. That's supposed to sound nonsensical, and that's, that's his whole idea of how, of how grace works. In, in, these two, in these two stories, essentially, what Jesus wants the, his disciples and us to understand is, in the parable of the talents, it's not about height. Do you remember the story? He gives out talents to each of these three guys, and one of them, one takes it and invests it and turns it into lots of money, and another does that, another thing. The third guy buries it, hides it. The master comes back and says, hey, where's the talent I gave you? Oh, I knew you were a mean, cruel guy. I buried it. I kept it here. Here it is. And the master's furious. That's creating a God based on fear. Think, think of how many of, uh, of you, maybe you grew up this way, I did, were told to be afraid, afraid of God. Not fearful in awe, that's different, but afraid of, because you just never know. There was this little publication called Chick Publications, and it doesn't mean what you think it means. It was called Chick Publications because it was made by Jack Chick. He was this extreme fundamentalist that gave him to us when I was in junior high, and it basically was any bad thought you have, if you're, if you're having a bad immoral thought, just a bad immoral thought, and you die, you could go to hell. Jesus would say, um, the Greek word for that is skubala. You can look that up later. Use your Googler. It means horse excrement. It's what it means. Apostle Paul uses it in one of his letters. My life before Jesus was dung, is the way the old King James Version used to trans translate that. And that's a pretty good, good translation. What Jesus wants us to see in these two stories is it's not about living a fear-based life. It's about following in the ways of Jesus. The second parable, then, is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And note this. If you, they, they want to know, who, who goes to heaven? Jesus says, well, there were these folks. We call it here on my left. All you folks over here, uh, you um, encountered a, a, a person who was hungry and you didn't feed him. You saw somebody who was naked, you didn't give him clothes. You saw somebody who was thirsty, you didn't bring him water. You folks, you saw somebody hungry and you gave her food. You saw somebody needed a blanket, you, you went home, gave him a blanket. You saw somebody needed a coat, you took your own coat off and gave it to him because you knew you had one at home that you could get to quickly. You folks have been living your whole life that way. Jesus says, you folks, go to hell. That's in the parable. You folks, you're welcome to heaven. And not a word about belief, not a word about um, confessing your faith in Jesus Christ, signing your name at the end of the Apostles' Creed, none of that stuff. According, literally reading that text, if you've cared for somebody in need and you've lived your life that way, you're in. If you haven't, sorry, but um, hopefully there's air conditioning. Now, it's not meant to be taken literally, of course. The idea is stop worrying about heaven and hell. Because if you look at it, when these people say, well, wait a minute, Lord, because uh, what Jesus says in the parable is anytime you've done these things unto me, anytime you've done these things, it's as though you've done them unto me. Well, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know. We didn't know. They're not even doing it to try to get into heaven. They're just doing it because that's the way they live. Uh, where these guys are just confused about what we're really, sorry, y'all are going to be like, Glenn told us to go to hell tonight. It was so lovely. <laughs> Do you see, do you see kind of where, where, where Jesus is going with this? It's about the way we live our lives. I think I told this story a couple weeks ago, but I'll tell it again um, briefly. Uh, Julie and I were with some, our friends Susan and Gary in, in New Orleans a few years ago. And, and, and we were walking to dinner from our hotel. 
And New Orleans, by the way, if you haven't been there, just pick a random restaurant and you'll have like the best meal you've had that year, if not in your life. It's just amazing. Anyway, we're, we're walking to a restaurant that, that uh, uh, Julie and Susan had figured out and we cut through Bourbon Street with all that wild craziness. In the middle of Bourbon Street, there are all these fundamentalist people with these signs about God hates, God hates fags, ugly things like that. You know, you're going to burn in hell if you stay here, all this stuff. I, stupid me. They went on to dinner. I walked up to this one guy. He looked like he's about 25. And I just said, I said, have you ever read Matthew 25? He said, well, uh, I don't know off the top of my head. So what is it? I said, well, the parable of sheep and goats. Yeah, yeah. I said, do you take the Bible literally? Oh, yes, I do. Well, in the parable of sheep and goats, uh, the goats don't help poor people and Jesus sends them to hell. The sheep help poor people and they go to heaven. There's not a word in there about what you believe, not a word in there about being gay or anything else. It's just that, that's just that blank. And, I, and the guy said, are you serious? <laughs> I said, brother, go home and read it. Matthew 25. Go home and read those parables. And then I, and I gave him my card and said, call me at, in Kansas City if you're ever in town. I'd be happy to talk to you. He never called me. But, but you, you see, that the, the folks get so myopic sometimes on what the text is really getting at when it's really actually a wide open invitation to a life of caring for others. All right, let's keep going. 26, 26 to 30. You've heard this story while they were eating. Jesus took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never eat, I will never drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Verse 30, when they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In the verse right before the verse I read, Jesus is named Judas as his betrayer. I'm, we're talking about Matthew's version of the story here. I want you to see this. The very next thing is they're eating and he institutes the Lord's Supper. Where's Judas? At the table at the table. Everyone is welcome at the table. One of the things that, that, that we try to say at this church every time we have communion is that there is no one who is turned away from the table. Everyone, even Judas, is at the table. You may have heard Dick Wing quote a book that I quoted all the time. It was, called, it was titled, Judas, Come Home, All is Forgiven. Do you, do you may remember Dick ever talking about that? Oh, good. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll use that in a sermon someday day coming up. That's the gospel. That's the message. Now, next slide helps us understand. Go to the next one here, um, Stuart. Jesus' command that the disciples eat his body and drink his blood is a challenge to all accounts of Christianity that would separate the truth of the gospel from the flesh and blood of the Eucharist. In other words, it's not like the truth of the gospel is this academic, intellectual, theological thing that exists over here. It's embodied in flesh and blood. It's embodied in the, in the breaking of bread, in the sharing of the wine. Anytime in the church, when you sit down with somebody else who's a member of the church, and you sit down together and you break bread, you share a cheeseburger or you have a, uh, a plate of pasta or you, you go out for a glass of wine, that's Eucharist. That's the, that's, the, that's the engagement of communion. Anytime you share in that way. In fact, for the first, oh, 150, 200 years of the church, 
the church would gather together and they would have, they, they would, there might have been 30 or 40 in these little home churches, house churches most of the time, and they would have a big communal meal. And during that meal, they would talk about whatever that day's scripture lesson was, something from the Psalms or maybe something from one of the apostles that had been written as a letter like Peter's or Paul's or, or John's, etc. And they would talk about that and they would, they would dissect it and share their ideas and their thoughts and, and you see where this is going. And then they'd get to the end and someone would take some bread. Remember when Jesus was like this with his friends around the table? They'd pass it around. And then they'd fill up a cup and say, you remember when, when the cup of blessing was shared? You see what happened? It, it, it wasn't this little thing that you would do at the end of the worship service where everyone take a little piece of bread. And, and, I mean, what we do is fine, but it wasn't that. It was this gigantic reminder in the, in the flesh and the blood. I, have you noticed, by the way, in communion now, when we break the bread, we're not scoring it. I, 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 I want us to crack it and break it and make a big crumbly mess. And, I, and, we, and now we're pouring the wine in. There's going to be a Sunday when I miss. <laughs> and it won't be a bad thing. Because it's those, in seeing the realness of the bread and the realness, it's grape juice, by the way, in the, in the realness of the, of the fruit of the vine, we, we, are, we are literally saying out loud, in a, in a, in a um, not saying, presenting in a visual way that, that bread and wine and life and food and gathering and being together is what it means to be a part of Jesus' family. It's in this action that we do around the table. When our staff uh, met the other day and had a big staff lunch, and we had, I think it was tacos. It was Taco Tuesday. We had, we had tacos. That came after worship. In some ways, we should have put the worship after, after the lunch. To move from the lunch into the worship is, is the natural way, at least in the, in the early, early church. Um, um, I, I, there's, a, there's a text in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that says you're not to take the Lord's Supper unworthily. Anybody ever heard that text before? Have you ever heard that? We were, we were told growing up that if you've done something wrong and you haven't confessed it, then you could be in danger of going to hell. I mean, it's always in, you're always in danger. You know, don't take communion, unworth, don't take it in an unworthy manner. Don't, don't you, if you haven't, no, 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 no. In the Corinthian church, remember what I just said about all the people getting together and having a big meal? In the Corinthian church, you, you guys are never going to sit on my left again. In the Corinthian church, all the rich people showed up early. And they ate all the good food. And they drank all the good wine. And they had a really good party. And an hour later, all of y'all who actually work for a living, um, who have uh, a very busy lives, probably many of you are slaves. Some of you are tectons. It's a, it's a work, word for uh, worker with hands. You've actually had, had you don't get Sundays off because Rome doesn't care about Sundays. You don't get Sundays off. You're doing your job. You show up for the, for the church meal and you come walking in and all the rich, haughty people, some of whom might be your masters, I've eaten your food and drank your wine. And Paul is furious in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he's saying to them, basically, you can't live like this. This is not what the church of Jesus is about. Wait until the other folks show up so that everyone can share together in the meal. Um, isn't it funny how practical and real the Bible is if we just let it speak to us in context and then put it into our own context? I mean, if we had a big, if we had a big dinner here at the church and we secretly invited all the, all the number one pledgers and said, you guys come early because we got good stuff for it, you know... I don't think that would go over very well with most of the rest of us. I, I don't think. All right, there's a couple more things here, I, I, but I need to close. Um, remember the story about Jesus and Pilate? Pilate asks Jesus a bunch, you should have read it if you read for tonight. Jesus asks, uh, Pilate asks Jesus a bunch of questions, and most of the time Jesus' response is silence. Uh, next slide. Jesus submits to Pilate. But a submission cannot help but subvert Pilate's authority. 
Such is the power of truthful silence. Occasionally, someone will come by the church, find me, ask me for some help. Could you give me $10 to go see my mother? I need money for food, that sort of thing. I have a pretty good truth detector, but the easiest way to tell is by what? The length of the story. You know, my mom and this, and then the, my uncle from Alabama and the other one from Canada is coming, and then, and then the, the, and, and, and just, it's, easy, it's easier to tell. The truth doesn't need a whole lot of words. Truth is, generally speaking, pretty simple. What was it? Was Lincoln the one who said that, that no one can keep a lie? It's just almost impossible to keep, I'm, I'm messing up the quote, but you understand where I'm going with that. It's really hard to keep connection of all the different things one says when a lie is, is spoken. Truth needs but a few words. And not only on top of that, Pilate has in front of him the embodiment of truth. Then, next slide. The reality is unavoidable. He was crucified. Note this in the text. And it's true about Mark, John, uh, Luke, and John. Very little detail about the act of crucifixion. And then he was crucified. Do you know why? I think two reasons. One, the gospel writers don't want to glorify violence. That was my biggest criticism of Mel Gibson's movie, was the amount of what one reviewer called pornographic violence. There was just too much violence in that, in that film. You can't get any of that out of the text. Uh, um, secondly, he didn't have to describe it. You ever seen a lynching? You ever seen a picture of one? You ever heard about one? I don't have to give you a whole lot of descriptions about it for you to understand, right? His readers know. Chances are somebody they knew has been crucified. There's no reason to do that. The starkness of that word, he was crucified. He's still alive. Think of it that way. When Matthew writes that, he's still alive. His hands are nailed, his feet are nailed. He's still alive. The horror, the ugliness, the pain, the awfulness is, is all there. And so then we end with this question. My God, my God, why? <clears throat> it is the singular question of humanity shared since the beginning of time to now. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard somebody in my office or a hospital room or a hospice room or in their own home, my God, my God, why? I'll, I'll close with this, but remember we're going to the resurrection next week, so uh, this is, this is a, a tough story. A couple in my church in Kansas City, they're not married. He's like 23, 24, she's like 21, 22. They're dating, she's pregnant, they wrestle. What do we do? What do we do? We get an abortion. Do we not get an abortion? They decide to have the baby. It's a tough, hard decision. Regardless of how you think on that issue, they wrestled with it real hard and they decided we're going to have the baby. They have the child, but at about five and a half months, the child is stillborn. I was in the hospital. I held that little blue baby in my hands. I baptized it and prayed over it and held the mother's hand and she asked me this question. That's the question of humanity. That's, that's the question that is, is put before us as followers of Jesus.
why? My God, why? Next week, we're going to look at Matthew 28. We're going to just do one chapter. So I hope you'll read um, that chapter before you come. Read Hauerwas's chapter on it. It's brilliant. Um, amazing stuff. But I want, I'm doing this on purpose. I want this question lingering somewhere in the back of your mind between now and next Tuesday as we move from this ugly, horrific story to the one we know so well, but one we can't tell fully unless we deal with this first. Y'all are awesome. Thank you very much. Good night.